The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. So with about 8 minutes and 30 seconds left in the third quarter when the Warriors went up by 31 points against the Clippers, I'll admit it, I kind of started tuning out a, a little bit, started thinking about how we would, wouldn't have much to say about two epic blowouts and uh, both the 1-8 series are looking like complete mismatches. And then all of a sudden, the Clippers started to work their way back. I ended up having to rewatch the whole second half as a result of not having paid close enough attention during the beginning of their comeback. And I think the place I want to start here is that Lou Williams had the best game of his NBA career. I've actually seen both of those games in person at Oracle. The other one was a 50-point game during last year's regular season. Williams, 13-22 from the field, 36 points, 11 assists which was really, I thought, the most impressive part of his night. The best passing game I've ever seen him have. That's got to be close to a career high in assists for Lou, especially down the end. He hit three just crazy fading jump shots with the guys all over him in the last five minutes of the game to get the Clippers back into it. Montrez Harrell also had some just unbelievable finishing. He had 25 points on only 13 shooting possessions. Those two guys who we think of as defensive liabilities, led this Clippers team, and they shut down the Warriors over the last 20 minutes of the game as well with those guys largely on the floor. Just an epic performance, and the Clippers arguably now, as a franchise, possess the two greatest comebacks in NBA playoff history in a single game. They do, and it was a a great performance from a a lot of different guys, and the team effort after the game, Doc Rivers was effusive, and I mean, if you've heard him talk about this team, Team. A lot of those stories really did come into the fore in this game, not giving up the identity stuff coming from Patrick Beverly and Lou Williams. Lou was spectacular in that second half. And I thought that a play which encapsulated a lot of the story of this game, and, and people will interpret this, and that's why I'm going to clarify it in a specific way. And that was the last play of the third quarter. So Stephen Curry had missed most of that quarter due to foul trouble. He comes back in with 13 seconds to go. The Clippers pressure him a little bit. They, they kind of did an early early pressure and then they brought in somebody else later curry throws the ball to the right corner where incidentally quinn cook and clay thompson are standing next to each other and then this is the part that i think is the story shea gilgis gilgis alexander steals the ball with about 5.5 seconds left and by the time shea gets to the basket all five clippers are inside the three-point arc and iguodala contests shea's potential layup so he just passes the ball to a teammate i believe it was jermichael green oh no it was wilson chandler it was wilson chandler bucket and Wilson Chandler gets the layup and I I thought that was a great encapsulation of how you make this kind of
kind of a comeback, this historic comeback, 31 points in that second half, is by making the reads, taking advantage of opportunities, and then busting your ass to make the most out of every single opportunity, however it was created, whether it was individual brilliance like Lou Williams, whether it was a mistake by the opponent, and just maximizing it, taking it to its hilt, and working every single possession. Yeah, and I thought that the Clippers positioned themselves effort-wise to take advantage of Golden State lapses. Steve Kerr said, we stopped playing in the third quarter. That was absolutely correct. They had some atrocious turnovers, a couple by KD where he just jogged back, never got back into the play. Clippers got fast break layups out of those. There was a sequence in the fourth quarter where they tried to throw the ball. Sean Livingston tried to throw the ball into Clay in the post, just throws it out of bounds. Then Sean Livingston follows Danilo Gallinari with one on the shot clock, trying to inbound the ball, giving him a fresh shot clock. They score. And then Seth just gets ripped at half court by Patrick Beverly, just being completely nonchalant. That was a key sequence as Golden State actually had gotten it back to 18 and led by 16 with eight minutes left. It seemed like they had stabilized things after the Clippers got it back back to 11 and uh oh contrary they had not they put up 85 points in the second half and overcome a massive deficit both at halftime and then that 31 points midway through the third quarter uh can i give Clippers, you a, yeah can i give you a stat i really liked from this game yeah in the first half the warriors were completely ridiculous when steph curry was on the floor they had a 140 offensive rating and a plus 50 net rating with lou williams on the floor in the second half 150 offensive rating plus 54.4 net rating i think it's also worth talking about just what the tenor of this game was combined the teams had 41 turnovers 22 by golden state there were 64 personal fouls called beverly and kd both fought out of the game kevin durant had nine turnovers including four offensive fouls in the second half but the clippers were able to muck it up especially in the second half they got to the foul line more as well as the game wore on and they really caused a lot of problems with their strategy we had talked about how the way they were top locking guys Landry Shamit I thought was awesome on Steph in the second half about as good as you can be for a guy with his physical ability laying off some of those screeners and yeah those they were able to get a few open threes for Steph and Clay with screens from the guys who weren't being guarded but overall I thought the strategy worked well enough in the second half and even though the Clippers scored those 85 points and the Warriors defense was not good I actually actually thought it was more and they got outscored I think 72 to 37 in the midst of that 31 point comeback I thought actually the 37 was more damaging to the Warriors because this is not a great Clippers defensive team they have no rim protection and yet the Clippers really shut them down and forced a lot of turnovers and really mucked the game up and yeah they sent Golden State to the foul line 45 times it's the most free throw attempts this is not a high free throw attempt Warriors team that's the most free throw attempts the Warriors have or that anyone has shot since a hack of Dwight game in that Clippers rocket series in 2015 but you can't call every foul even though these refs certainly tried in this game and there were a lot of fouls but even with allowing the Warriors to shoot 45 free throws and, and I mean they shot 89% on those 40 out of 45 the Clippers kind of came out ahead in the bargain they slowed everyone down they annoyed the Warriors they got them to commit a bunch of their own offensive fouls trying to get off of them when they were being held and it wasn't being called like Steph's fourth foul came trying on an offensive foul trying to break free from someone KD I mentioned the four offensive fouls that he had so mucking the game up even though they were fouling a ton and even though Patrick Beverly and Jermichael Green both fouled out it still worked you know I, I think you have to say that they, 
the strategy of just mucking it up and being really intense worked at least in this one even though they gave up a buck 31 it slowed them down just enough in the second half that their offense and the incredible performance uh, from Lou Williams and Harrell was able to win the game for them along those lines in the second half alone the Clippers had 29 points off of turnovers and they had 10 steals Warriors had 16 turnovers in total 10 of those were live ball and six of them were, were dead ball and I think four of those six dead ball ones were the Durant offensive fouls because those you know those stop the play if you stick your butt out on a screen or you elbow a guy and he sells it and by the way all those calls on him other than the Harold charge which we'll get to uh were clearly clear fouls i thought the the one that he fouled out on i thought was a clear foul i mean he really just backed his butt right into it and yeah uh david griffin will tell you that they don't call those very often when you stick your butt out but uh, i mean that's a clear foul. well and these reps were calling that sort of stuff you know it was and and something else it's i I enjoy that we're doing this before and also just because of the insanity of it wasn't getting caught up in some of the narratives that i'm sure will come from this but yes the warriors had they 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 dealt with foul trouble a lot in the second half and you know durant in particular four offensive fouls six total fouls all in the second half but they benefited from the aggressive whistle early in this game i mean the ridiculous amount of free throws that they attempted and it to me was just a game that was officiated a certain way and both teams had times where they benefited and had times where they were where they were really hurt by it and everybody knew the score pretty early on this to me this was not a game that was particularly officiated differently early and late they were just calling what they were calling a lot of stuff they were calling what they saw and who that helped shifted based on time and how the teams played kevin durant only took eight field goal attempts he was 11 of 12 but most of those were just off-ball fouls and yeah beverly did end up falling out on, on a nice little flop from draymond green as beverly gave the ball up and then just continued through green and and green uh, fell down and drew his sixth foul but he was very very uninvolved in the offense and he got pressured into some turnovers but you know he probably got the ball in the post maybe two or three times with a guy a foot shorter than him guarding him and yeah they're double teaming him pretty instantly and yeah there's also not a ton of shooting on the floor in some of these lineups a lot of time those double teams are going to lead to open threes for a green or an iguodala but they got to get him the ball a little bit more and have him a little bit more involved especially down the end of this game and yeah when everything's working great for this team you don't really need to give him the ball in, in those kind of situations and, and he'll get his points and in, in the flow of the offense etc etc i know certainly just being the competitor that he is that with beverly just getting into his shit he would love to beat him up and have a big scoring game on him and not have the story be how beverly shut him down but you do have to kind of keep kd going and you can't just expect him to show up break glass in case of emergency and score down the end of games when he's you know hasn't gotten really any touches in his preferred way now certainly i think most of the time the team runs better when steph is more of a focus clay is more of a focus they're doing more of the off ball stuff getting a lot of assists etc but again some of the best teams and you know the clippers on this night certainly were that i think he needs to get it a little bit more doc rivers alluded to defensive adjustments or at least he said a couple of adjustments that we made on the fly in the third quarter i went back and tried to figure out what those were i'm not entirely sure i'll see if i can run that down for certain but it looked like the plan was which i hadn't seen them do beforehand and maybe i just wasn't paying enough attention before that when lou was involved defensively and it was interesting as soon as steph got that foul to go to the bench in the third they he came in with lou williams right away which i thought was a really good sub to get him in at, at that point earlier than he normally would have also probably because they were down by so much he's like 
right, let's see if we can make a dent here. If we can't, then we'll just rest everybody. Uh, but it seemed like what the plan was is that on screens involving Lou, he was going to try to deny whoever was coming off the screen. And then if they did succeed in getting the guy the ball, they were going to double team. And it didn't really come into play that much. Frankly, the Warriors were getting fouled so often and on fouls out on the floor and turning it over so often, it was hard to see exactly what they're doing. I think they worked in a little bit more switching as well, but that's a little bit of an unsatisfactory answer. I wish I had a better one on what they did. So I'll see if I can figure out what this big scheme change that they did in the middle of the third quarter that he alluded to was, uh, if anything. Um, what else you got on this one? Well, I one of the what might end up being the longest, what probably will be the longest term story from this game doesn't involve the outcome. Yeah, it, why don't we save that to the end, actually? Sure, if okay. If we can, because I, I had a few other things I want to say on that. Yeah, I, I have plenty of other things to talk one. about in the game as well. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so yeah. So, so during that third quarter, one of the, so because they the Warriors had to change their center rotation around, Kerr did go to Jordan Bell, basically exhumed him for a brief stretch. I didn't think Bell played particularly well or or poorly during that during the four minutes that he was on the floor, but it was yeah, notable the, that it happened because... Yeah, with DeMarcus out, I think they felt like uh, they had a chance to get him some minutes and that he might be needed going forward now. Right, and Bogut played more. He he played 17 minutes. He was fine. And then Kevon Looney actually set a career high in scoring. A lot of that occurred in the first half. He had 19 points on 6 of 6 shooting. And also, importantly for him, Looney made 7 of 8 free throws. And that was, yeah. you know, a lot of times when a guy has a career high in scoring, it can involve that sort of free throws. I was actually talking about Wilt's free throws in the 100-point game early before this game started. So that was, was kind of funny that came up. Obviously, Looney was nothing close to that. But the idea of free throws being a driver in there. Also, Alfonso but McKinney Lo- was... Looney has really improved his finishing, by the way. Oh, absolutely. And, and he ca- he also caught... His hands have gotten better, too. He caught that, yeah. like, absolute fastball from Durant, which could have been his 10th turnover. Um. Yeah, you were going to say something else, though? Yeah, I, I think that the Warriors tried something that that will be fascinating moving forward both in this series and theoretically beyond it where going to Andrew Bogut on the second unit actually created in the first half they had to change it in the second half because of Curry's foul trouble and a couple other things created a, a lineup that was in many ways similar to the theory behind their second unit the last two seasons where for those who remember David West was the center in those lineups and the Warriors didn't score particularly well in those in those groups they didn't have a ton of shot creation on the floor that was often they were doing you know the curry durant non-staggers those guys were both out at the same point but the theory behind those lineups was a lot of smart active defenders try to stop the other team as best you can and then get points as as possible you know like so maybe you're gonna in those stretches you're gonna it's gonna be six to five for those six minutes it might not be you know 15 to 10 or something like that and the Warriors and Clippers both hit a few shots but I thought the idea behind it was was fascinating because that has not been the idea for the Warriors second unit both when Cousins was available and but even before Cousins was available because Bogut is a much more capable defensive center in that more traditional mold than the other guys they have for the Clippers, Shamit I thought was awesome on both ends. The fact that he was kind of throw any in that deal is remarkable to me, especially if he's able to play the type of defense that he played off the ball today. Uh, now, different matchups are going to give him more more trouble than guys like Steph Curry because Steph isn't going to out-physical him. But he's actually much quicker than he was advertised as coming out of Wichita State. I mean, he looks like he's going to be a real good shooting guard and he's going to be on a very cheap contract for the next three years. It's actually possible that he 
he might be a better asset over the next three years on his contract than Tobias Harris is going to be on the max contract that he's going to sign. And that's just one of the things that they got in that deal. They they also got two other draft picks as well. Um, and of course, the immortal Mike Muscala, who uh, enabled them to get Zubach. Zubach got the Keith Bogans tonight. Um, Doc also changed up and went more with Jermichael Green at center than we saw. Uh, he didn't go with Harrell until about four minutes left in the third, but Green was out there. He was helped out defensively when they started the comeback. He did foul out, but he had 13 points on five of six, and he's been much more aggressive shooting the three in LA than in Memphis, where just for some reason you're not allowed to be aggressive shooting the three unless you're Marcus Ole or Mike Conley. And so I, I thought he was good. He added some needed athleticism for them. The Clippers down the end went with a lot of small, small pick and rolls with Lou Williams, and he really has improved so much going to his right hand. You really, I mean, the jump shot going to his left is still always going to be his money play and he was so good at that. he also had this like fade away three guarded by alfonso mckinney in the corner where he just like leaned to this impossible angle behind the backboard and drained it uh and he i mentioned those three other jumpers that he hit as well down the end but i mean he was his chemistry with harrell was awesome i thought the warriors needed to be a little more aggressive bringing help over and maybe forcing him to make that pass to the opposite side which he hasn't shown as much facility at but really just an incredible game by him and he's obviously a bad matchup for this warriors team and when he put up 50 on him too i mean it's one of tonight that night and maybe Kyrie in game five although that was without draymond game five in 2016 are probably the most unstoppable scoring performances i've seen against this warriors group since they really you know became the warriors back in, in 2014-15 with, with green playing a significant role so it, it was really awesome uh anything more on the meat of this or should we get to the end of this game yeah i have something more on the meat i was happy that doc rivers brought this up after because it had been something that drew my interest throughout and that was Stephen Curry ended up guarding Danilo Gallinari a lot more in this game and it seemed like the Warriors were fairly comfortable going to it and so what Doc talked about he brought up the point astutely that the best defense they played against Steph Curry was Steph Curry's foul trouble that when he was yeah. wasn't and, on the and floor. that's always what if you want to look at a really bad Warriors game in the last five years it almost always seems to involve Steph getting in a foul trouble and, and that was a clear foul by the way he clearly grabbed Shamit oh absolutely uh, and and his and his second yeah. foul was actually the one that was probably the worst where he it was just totally unnecessary he went for a contest yeah. on a play when he was really late like didn't really have anything there and I've said this on probably about 50 different players in the league if you're as important as those guys are offensively sacrifice a basket or two if you have to to just make sure you don't get in foul trouble and because you're going to pick up fouls just through the course of the game it's those it's those discretionary ones that can cause some real problems Harden gets into this it was something I complained about when we did the NBA cast for Rockets Jazz ended up not burning them in that one of course but so what Doc brought up was that they made Curry work more defensively and I thought Curry actually did a decent job in a lot of those moments but it is a lot of work I mean Gallo's a big dude he's 6'10 physical can was getting his shot off and and so I I think there is there is a point to that also Curry was just he looked out of rhythm as well in that fourth quarter after being so dominant in the first half of this game and so all of those things running together I mean that's kind of an old school thing of like make the offensive player work on defense but there's merit to it because it gets those guys tired it can it can be something else that they have to think about all that said the Warriors are up five with 230 remaining three on one fast break 
Kevin Durant on the right wing sails in Harrell was actually there and not moving for which is a rarity on some of these charges that get called but he also didn't really take it right in the chest but he got outside the restricted area he was stationary they gave KD his fifth foul on that play the shot went in would have been an and one if the call goes the other way and they're up eight and the game's over with 230 left so that that call obviously was enormous and, and that one was was questionable I think as the rule is called these days probably the right call in that situation and, and great job by Harrell stopping a, a three on one there uh, a couple other notes uh, from the end of the game you know KD jacked a, a top of the th- key three and an ISO when he had just blown by his man for a dunk on one of the previous possessions uh, that seemed like a little bit of a settle then the Warriors are up three they get a steal and Draymond just throws it ahead to Andre who's not looking and they just turn it right back over and then Lou uh, hits one of those uh one of his shots right after that uh the Warriors still are up three in the final minute with Steph Curry going to his left hitting a, a huge three off an Andre Iguodala screen when they weren't guarding Iguodala uh and it seemed like it was over then but Lou hit another crazy leaning jump shot and then on the final play uh, after Clay Thompson got wide open on a pick and pop another, a pretty good play call Kerr did call timeout uh after oh actually no sorry that was, that was after the Clippers went up uh pretty good play call Clay I don't think he caught it cleanly kind of double clutch but that shot spun right out they're already you know are, are up one there that three would have ended the game as well and then they decided after a timeout from Doc that they were going to actually it looked like the plan was although it wasn't particularly well executed if it was the plan to actually double team Lou Williams make him give the ball up and they found Shea Gilgis Alexander and then Draymond and Andre Guadalla miscommunicate they both go to Shea and they leave Shamit with a wide open three-pointer to put the clips up two and then I thought that Kerr although you're kind of like okay we we just got emotionally deflated they just took the lead for the first time on us and it had been tied at one point before like we got to get a timeout and kind of settle ourselves emotionally I thought calling that timeout was a big mistake because that enabled Doc Rivers to get his defensive guys in Garrett Temple and take out Lou Williams for a defense only possession and Curry gave it up got it back uh, eluded the defender kind of and took a, a tough three he was uh, from the right wing he's actually started running back like he had made it he did not make it and then Harrell hit two clutch free throws uh, to put it out of reach for the the Clippers at the end is there anything that about the end that stuck out to you there I mean the the turnover where Draymond just threw the pass ahead to nobody in particular that was off that was a, a really crazy sequence and I think yeah he committed I think he committed a foul off that or yeah maybe Lou Williams made a shot yeah yeah I think I think it was yeah Lou going to to his right and, and Draymond committed a foul which he uh did not agree with it happens but yeah th- those sorts of turnovers and I, I drew a line so my my report card kind of player analysis for this which is on the full site and or will be on the full site and in the app I drew a line on some of Kevin Durant's turnovers between forced and unforced errors and like I didn't that play because it wasn't a Durant turnover I didn't talk about as much but those sorts of plays were a big part of this but also like Shea had three steals in the second half four steals total I thought he did a really nice job it kind of being opportunistic without really sacrificing as many open looks so I wanted to mention that as well so you mentioned the DeMarcus injury four minutes into the game he had had a high activity level gets a steal out of the floor tries to run it down and right in front of the Warriors bench he saw his left leg just kind of buckle and it was unclear exactly like what the injury was and what the injury mechanism was you know it seemed like maybe it would be a hamstring with him sprinting towards it and then he started grabbing at his quad and there was a photo posted by Rachel Nichols of him going through the hallway with his pant leg up and you could see there's kind of this dent in his quad 
quad and Woj reporting that there's significant fear that it's a torn quad there's going to be an MRI tomorrow that maybe it's not that bad and it might just be more of a pull pull torn I mean those aren't necessarily medical terms but Kerr acknowledging that he's going to miss significant time that's not the kind of injury that you're just going to come back from to I mean if it's going to be the type of thing where you're going to miss a lot of time to just come back from it and be a factor and be in condition to play at the highest levels I mean I think he's going to kind of be at best would be starting from square one kind of where he was when he first was debuting with the Warriors so I think the most likely is that he's not going to be a factor in these playoffs you know it could be I mean when you say torn I guess maybe that means grade three I don't it's I don't think it's a full rupture because he was at least able to like walk a little bit uh and it doesn't sound like there's a concern about a quad tendon which would be a worse injury but I mean it's sounding like he's gonna be if not done for the year a non-factor in this playoff run the rest of the way and it sucks so much for him personally Demarcus's second playoff game ever after you know last year the Pelicans made the playoffs but he didn't get to participate due to the Achilles issue four minutes in gets her non-contact injury just terrible twist of fate and the Warriors will have to deal with this you know they, there will have to be a different conception of the center position Cousins was always going to be a strange fit though we did have a good game against the Rockets in a potential Rocket series which I still think is the most likely next step in in the, this progression as the Clippers winning this game extends this series to be sure but we'll see how far it does and Bogut can you know he he played squared up with Zubac for the limited amount that Zubac played and then had a little bit of trouble with Harold. Harold's speed is just something that's hard for a lot of guys to deal with. And Looney can play more. Draymond at center is is a natural extension here for for portion of those minutes. Maybe Jordan Bell gets some as well. But they are going to have to figure this out. And then remember also that in all likelihood that we don't know exactly who theoretically if they make it to the Western Conference Finals the Warriors will face a lot of those teams are more center reliant and so maybe that goes to Bogut I mean maybe that goes to a few other guys but we're just gonna have to see and Cousins will we'll have a better idea after the MRI is done on Tuesday at some point but it is it is a significant injury and it's significant more more for for Cousins personally than anything else yeah I think Jordan Bell is going to become a lot more important now especially in the Houston series Bogut get to me probably not really going to be able to play much in that Houston series we'll see if they try to start him or just start Looney and Looney obviously was really good against the Rockets a year ago I think he's improved since then but they're going to need a little bit more mobility they hopefully will have Andre Guadal available which of course they didn't and that's part of why Bell had to play more as well in that series but Cousins was going to add a different element he did have that one good game against the Rockets he was going to make it in theory a little bit more difficult for them to switch it with his ability to post up and get on the offensive glass I don't think he's a that significant of a loss I wouldn't change to me he was kind of a guy who was a role player if he was going well maybe you could leave him in there if not you could take him out so more that he would make a difference in a game or two more than that he's going to be that critical to what they were doing I do think however you mentioned for him personally this injury actually increases the likelihood that he's back next year with the logic 
with the logic being that if his salary offers other places go down that the even though the Warriors can't offer that much that it becomes more palatable yeah I think that's it and maybe he feels like there's a unfinished business also if KD leaves he'll have a much much bigger role uh and probably will end up closing games and they'll need him as a third offensive option which they won't really have uh and now they may not even be willing to offer him well they probably aren't gonna even if KD leaves if Clay returns especially if he gets designated veteran they probably won't have have room under the apron to use the full mid-level anyway so the other but so they wouldn't be able to offer him more than a 20 percent raise off of this year but you know maybe a one plus one with that it would be enough to to get it done and then they could give him a big raise the year after that but you wonder where his market would really be would it be better this summer than it was last summer if he doesn't play at all and you know, he's not really healthy for three months or something uh yeah, maybe it would be i mean if he if but i don't think any had moments but i'm not sure that he's shown enough to be like okay this guy is our starting center and he's a star and we're really gonna pay him a ton and i mean he's made a fair amount of money in his career but you know we'll see what's important to him he may there's really no way knowing that i still think he probably would be able to get more money elsewhere but maybe it gets to be close enough again that he would want to stick around i mean i think if if kd stays then he's not going to be back regardless but uh if he leaves you know maybe maybe there's a thought that okay now i'm really going to get a chance to showcase myself again uh anything else here or or uh should we move on i think that's about all i have i mean it was an absolutely fascinating game and great for the clippers to to get rewarded for the the effort that they put out in some superlative performances to have a win and to to you know keep this series going and to, to build some real positive momentum and actually that's one thing i want to talk about i'm not closing the door on this clippers team at all but i was thinking about as they were pushing through this comeback about how so many of the key pieces of this year's identity will the 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 team will just be so different next year based on what the Clippers want you know like that that they're looking to change this team a lot and I was really fascinated by that considering how much Doc clearly loves coaching this collection of individuals yeah, I mean Harold, Lou Williams Gallo Shamit Shea those guys are all likely to be back next year I mean maybe Gallo if they're really if they really strike gold in free agency might not be back but I mean those uh, Beverly uh, uh Jermichael Green Temple you know those are really the only uh, Zubat should be back next year those are really the only guys that are free agents and maybe they'll even find a way to bring back someone like like beverly it seems like he's uh, certainly thriving there um we'll get to brooklyn and philly first i want to tell you about our longtime sponsor indochino i trust them so much in fact that they were the official outfitter of my wedding and got a nice uh, twitter mention today from someone who sent me a, a photo of themselves in a perfectly fitting indochino suit using that familiar cap space code to get a great deal just $379 for any premium Indochino suit using that code and getting 50% off the regular price and free shipping. It's really easy. You can visit a stylist. They now have 40 showrooms in North America. They are expanding like crazy. I remember when I first started doing the reads, they had eight North American showrooms. So they have really expanded. So you can go in there, have them take your measurements. You can check out all the fabrics they have. They have over a hundred fabrics that you can pick. Take a look at some of the details you can personalize like your appel the lining you check out those fabrics as well the shape of the pockets the buttons single breasted double breasted you can get basically the exact suit that you've always wanted there's no more going to the store just hoping they have a fabric that you're interested in hoping that they have that off the rack fit for you or if you're not close to one of their showrooms which i'm guessing is probably not gonna be the case at this point they have a tutorial on how to measure yourself and send in your measurements as well and it's ready in a couple of weeks it's really not that much longer 
than it would take to get a suited department store and have their tailor do it for you and this one's actually made for you there's nothing like having clothing that is actually made for you it used to be the exclusive province of people who made a lot more money than me and a lot more money than probably many of our listeners but now that is no longer the case so it's indochino.com promo code capspace to get an incredible deal on your premium made to measure suit don't forget that capspace code let them know that you came from us so where i want to start on philly brooklyn there was injury concerns Embiid played was again lower than his normal minutes in the first half jared dudley with a calf injury was unable to suit up i thought that that did end up mattering to some degree but the big thing was we talked about how brooklyn's starting lineup isn't anywhere close to their best group they only have one creator that's d'angelo russell everyone else can't really do anything off the dribble with that group you know dinwiddie and lavert who were probably their two best players in game one come off the bench and the thought was well yeah they're at a mismatch against this great philly starting lineup that had played very limited minutes but had like a 20 net rating when they were all able to play together yeah they're at a mismatch against those guys but if they can just stanch the bleeding enough then with the bench units when philly has to play oh and i should mention too that james ennis was back for philly i thought he actually really mattered a lot for them but when you they had to play a bunch of guys who weren't as good off the bench that's when you can make up the ground and in game one that trade-off actually worked pretty well the bench units uh, for brooklyn were really dominant and they did not win that trade-off here in game two Danny. it doesn't exactly help when philadelphia goes on a 21 to 2 run to start the third quarter no it doesn't and i thought that in particular ben simmons looked a lot more he was a lot more aggressive in this game and there were many many reasons why the sixers had had that that 21 to 2 push and and overall did so well in the starters minutes but i thought simmons playing aggressively looking not only to to drive more to the basket himself and finish and he even had a couple of weird like misses and turns downs a shot even though it was eight for eight to twelve from the field had a triple double but i thought that that really made a difference they got more a lot more from jj reddick who had such a lost game in game one he was seven to twelve from the field 17 points and Embiid. there were still definitely you know you could see limitations you could see concerns stamina burst all those sorts of things but at least he wasn't settling for jump shots and i'm guessing that was a point of emphasis from the coaching staff because in this one as opposed to the last game where i think he had five three-pointers most of those in the first half eight of 12 from the field none of those from long distance yeah that was huge and philly really was not taking any three points in the first half it was really very interesting it was philly looked like they were dominating but the nets roared right back it was 65 64 at halftime the nets were 10 out of 20 from three in that first half but and getting up that many i'm sorry 10 out of 23 from three in the first half but getting up 23 three-point attempts so it was pretty good for them and philly had taken very few threes i think they were like two out of seven at halftime and that run by philly i think it occurred basically in like the first three minutes and the nets just weren't able to get good shots they were giving up runouts russell had had some turnovers joe harris was like trying to put the ball on the floor and they really just were not able to even approximate a good shot during that run and they put in dinwiddie after like two and a half minutes and they were already down by 16 at that point and the game was pretty much over although philly would go on to author a record tying third quarter 51 points 51 to 23 they outscored 
for them it was close to the biggest point differential in a quarter in NBA playoff history I think Feldman had that that was 30 and they tied as we talked about last year when Houston was one off of this number a 51 point fourth quarter by the 1962 Lakers in a game that they lost where they're getting blown out and they just scored 51 points in the fourth quarter and that was obviously a, a time when paces was just completely crazy so it was easier to do that I mean this was incredible efficiency 51 points on 26 possessions basically a wide open dunk every time they got the ball would have been a, about as efficient so obviously they shot it extremely well they ran it down the nets throats they had no answer whatsoever but I don't think that that third quarter I, I mean certainly Philly was awesome in that I don't know how representative that is for this series going forward because especially against that starting unit which my prediction is they're, they're going to change that in game three they would be smart to at least uh but one thing that i think is going to carry over is philly really doubled down on the advantages that they had especially with their bench unit they went with jonah bolden at the four in the first half which i didn't see much of i don't know how many minutes he played with Embiid. they started the second quarter with the four starters except for jj reddick and jonah bolden so jimmy butler is the smallest guy on the floor and their center is 7-2 and the general pattern of the last 10 years or so in NBA basketball has been that going smaller spreading the floor beats size but for Philly that was not the case in this one they had 56% offensive rebounds through the competitive portion of the game Ben Simmons we said that he needed to assert himself physically it was clear that he was doing that right from the start he was getting right to the rim he had four offensive rebounds 12 assists two steals 18 points this was the Ben Simmons that made everyone fall in love with him as a prospect and while there are teams like a Milwaukee or a Boston that I think have the personnel to cause him problems the Nets are not one of those teams like he can just completely out physical this team uh Embiid you mentioned was really efficient despite not really looking like himself and uh, having you know some missed finishes around the rim at times I mean for him to not look like himself and still have 23 points on 16 shooting possessions it was awesome Mike Scott came in to hit some threes especially in the, in the third quarter and getting Ennis back he was on a 12 minute limit but I I thought that was big just to and tj mcconnell didn't play at all during the competitive portion of the game i thought that was big just to provide one fewer hiding place now all of a sudden with bolden holding zone pretty well also mike scott was much better defensively in this game one-on-one and with ennis now you only really have one guy in reddick that you're just gonna attack one-on-one and the nets completely lit up philly in the previous game but McC- taking mcconnell out and then you know having reddick not play as many minutes and going bigger really took that away i thought that was made clear lavert came in and was trying to do some of the same moves blow by guys and he just wasn't able to get separation in the first half philly was just much better on him i thought um what else you got on this one well i pulled the stat on bolden and and Embiid this year 148 minutes plus 11.9 net rating huh I'm surprised it was that many that they played together. I mean, I guess they, they uh, I should, no two-man combination with this team should surprise me because they really were desperately searching for bench answers uh, so much this year. They were, especially at, at the big man spots. So they were, they, they probably tried, tried some things during that. And also, even though he missed a couple in this game, we did see a, a brief, a return of mid-range maestro Boban Marjanovic. He hit a couple of more, they just 
Brooklyn just keeps on conceding free throw line free throw line jumpers to Bobot or yeah. jumper it, jumper like shots. Let's put it that way. There yeah, isn't yeah. there's a whole lot of a whole lot of jumping there. And Bobon did put up some of his numbers in garbage time as well, but he finished with sixteen and eight on fourteen shots. And one other important Bobon note though was that I thought he was much the, the Nets were a lot less scared of him as a rim protector, which yeah. is smart. He's not a great rim protector. And that could end up being significant moving forward in more competitive games in the series. Yeah, I thought the Nets miss dudley on both ends they played jared allen actually 20 minutes in the first half and only three in this in the second half um and then they went to ed davis who got in foul trouble early on only played six minutes it seemed like that ankle was bothering him maybe they just didn't bring him back because the game was totally out of reach already and they just figured hey there's no reason to play him i'm not clear whether he only played the six minutes i mean he got the three fouls in the first half whether he could have come back in the second half or they just elected not to play him and why stress out that ankle a little bit um they went with hollis jefferson some off the bench at center in the second half but he while he is a solid defender does not provide the spacing that dudley does and their drivers had a, a lot less space in the second half as well and and when the three-pointers stopped going down for them that that was a big problem dinwiddie was awesome again i, I thought he's been the Nets' best player in the first two games he had 19 points on eight out of 16 it was getting to the rim really well russell hit some pretty nice threes early but he finished on with 16 points on 16 shots and four turnovers and I, one thing i think the sixers may try to exploit later on in this series that they didn't go to at all is that starters for starters they actually have russell guarding jimmy butler and if butler wants to he could just go right through russell at any time he did it a couple of times just when he got the ball in the flow of the offense but they clearly were trying to get other guys going like reddick tobias harris had a better game seven to seven from the foul line. that's not usually his game though to get to the foul line and it, and it seemed like he really only emerged during the pouring it on section of the game which again I, how relevant that is going forward I'm not sure because it was just such a deluge at that point for the Nets. Maybe what the Nets can do if Dudley still can't go, and I'm, I'm, if he couldn't play with that calf, I'm not incredibly optimistic about it going forward. Maybe it was the type of thing where they're very conservative about injuries, and he's felt the tweak. And they're like, all right, we already got our split. But usually, when you can't play with a calf or a hamstring, it's going to be at least a couple of games before you can make it back. And they need him because uh, they need that spacing if they're going to go with a centerless lineup. Maybe they could have. Kurooks try to fill that role instead especially if they take him out of the starting lineup he seems like the most logical guy to take out of the starting lineup he's at least got you know some length and some rebounding ability he's not the help defender that Dudley is but at least he can shoot the three and the theory of spreading the floor for guys like Levert and Dinwiddie to attack off the dribble on the second unit it could be preserved there so that that might be a thought uh anything else come to mind here for you no I think that's about all I had yeah and I think this is Philly restoring order they obviously have the talent advantage the fact that Embiid though is still on its minutes limit and doesn't look right I have great skepticism at this point that it's going to happen for him the conditioning still not really there you have to imagine that's not going to come back over with these limited minutes and probably not able to do that much in between games so I do think Philly will be okay in this series I think it'll go six still I'll stick with my original prediction you know I think Brooklyn gets one of the two we we get back to two two and then Philly takes the last two 
in theory although you know they are one injury away getting Ennis back again I mean just getting that one guy for 12 minutes I, I thought was so big for them and, and you know he didn't really do much offensively but just to have someone out there defensively that was going to be competent was really big uh and taking McConnell out of the rotation too I think you know you wouldn't think that taking a point guard out and putting in a power forward would like really help your offense and your spacing but that's you know we're talking about TJ McConnell here and his jump shot which is, is just not going to be taken I think if I have anything else on this let me check my notes here the Nets went to a little bit more zone generally any ATO any post free throw we'll see a little bit more of the zone just to take away whatever the opponent's play call is but, but they would actually play it a couple possessions in a row now don't think it's gonna be all that effective but it's just kind of a change up maybe we'll see it more if they just I mean if they continue to give up you know 1.5 points per possession then hey you might as well give the zone a shot uh I still think Dinwiddie is a solid defender the RPM PIPM was not good but I thought he did a pretty good job on Redick and some of the other guys he's matched up with where he's at a height deficit you know between Russell Levert and him he's probably the best defender of those guys and I think that's all that's all I've got I'm very interested to see what this Brooklyn crowd looks like and what the tenor of game three is because I think that's going to determine a lot if Philly wins that one you know they're right back in control if Brooklyn can make a game and at least make it close in game three and not just get completely blown off the floor I I am just so worried about their size deficit though and they're not a good rebounding team they don't have you know Jared Allen is kind of their only rebounder and even he is not that amazing uh oh Ed Davis obviously too but they usually only play one guy who even has close to traditional big size at any one time I mean Carroll Kuroks Dudley is not a good rebounder for all of his other strengths um yeah all right I think I'm, I'm done on that one let's turn to some of this news that is built up now the NBA layoffs as we call it a lot of this happening on that Thursday after the season ended but we had too many games to talk about yesterday couldn't get to it quite yet I think the place to start is in Sacramento, where Vlade Divac decided to move on from Dave Yeager, despite a 12-game improvement. And moreover, they have also moved on from Brandon Williams, with whom Yeager clashed. And Divac got an extension through 2022, so he clearly has consolidated power. This would leave, I think, Ken Catanella, uh, an experienced executive, good cap guy, as the number two guy underneath Divac. We'll see if they're interested in hiring someone else at this point and then actually i totally should have started with the lakers that would have made a lot more sense but the lakers uh fired luke walton and now the kings have hired luke walton let's talk first any about the decision to fire dave yeager what apparently went into that and do you agree with it jason jones is very plugged in to sacramento and i I liked his piece at the athletic which was a post-mortem on the firing but i actually read it after they hired luke walton just because we were so busy the last couple days and he talked about the communications issues that happened and it was a good reminder for me of all that goes into coaching it's not just who you play and when and what your offensive and defensive schemes are it's also talking with the players and making sure that they know that you value them and and that that they understand what's going on like there was some of that with like Harry Giles where Giles just wasn't really sure if even if and Bagley even if they weren't sure if Yeager liked them personally much less like their game or anything like that there were also the the clashes with the front office Brandon Williams most notable among them and so there was just the, these issues and a general manager has has the right if ownership gives them said right to 
consider all of these different elements for a coach. And and so for Jaeger, they just decided that even though he had been the leader uh, and had had really been a key instigator, along with you know De'Aaron Fox taking a big jump and everything else in the improvement that they did, that they could build on that with someone else. I'm guessing it helps that Luke Walton was pretty publicly on the hot seat. Walton and Vlade Divac have a pre-existing relationship as former teammates on the Lakers. I think they were teammates for one or two years, and that made it a natural call. And also something I think is really important here is that Luke Walton, from what we know about him as a head coach, and you know the limited amount that he kind of ran Steve Kerr's system with the Warriors, Luke Walton's mentality and what his strengths and weaknesses look like they mesh very well with this Sacramento team, both where they are now and where they want to go. Let's talk, talk a little bit more about the decision to fire Jaeger first. I, I thought he did an excellent job from a tactical standpoint this season. It would be impossible to argue otherwise. The fact that they got to a mid-level defense was really good. The fact that he was pushing them to run in a way, and in a totally different way, by the way, than the way he coached in Memphis. So I, I appreciate a coach who can show tactical flexibility like that. And I think that was key to Fox's surge. And frankly, I thought they got a lot out of Marvin Bagley, given some of his limitations they got harry giles by the end of the year and into being a quality player when he was basically unplayable at the start of the year and you know it really seems like it was bagley and giles you know who are obviously a big part of their future uh, who didn't care for jaeger and, and this echoes the way things ended in memphis well i'm gonna add in buddy healed there there was some pretty yeah. pretty public stuff with buddy healed as well oh yeah yeah at the end of that warriors game when uh healed took a deep three-pointer when he was open and they're down by like six or something like it was a good shot and then Jaeger undressed him publicly for not running the play and then the next time down Heald had a chance to pull a three that could have tied the game and he didn't because he was running the play that he was told to run so players don't like feeling that way they don't like feeling like it's robotic and they have to run the play and they can't do what they think is right when the situation calls for it uh but you know we'll see what happens with Walton and it's hard for me I mean when you're a player and yeah you don't like the guy maybe but you're also having by far your best season and you're establishing yourself you know i'm sure marvin Bagley probably felt like he should be starting and so did management but that pretty clearly is not the case based on the on off numbers but going back to jaeger's departure from memphis chris wallace said hey this isn't about x's and o's there's more to it than that and not only did jaeger not necessarily have the support of his players which is something that jason jones alluded to without really saying it in a piece about a week before the regular season ended about whether he could continue to communicate with the young core uh but maybe he never was doing that to begin with but also not communicating well with management his comments that he attempted to walk back in hilarious fashion by calling fox and bagley the next westbrook and durant after he made comments that at the very least reasonably could be interpreted as him saying that he wished they had luka Doncic instead of bagley and uh jason jones reporting after the season was over indicating that in fact yeager did want Doncic over bagley and by the way dave yeager was right and but really what it boils down to for Jaeger I mean if you're going to ask me who's more competent at their job Dave Jaeger or, or Vlade Divac and who deserves to stay if it's got to be an either or I would say Jaeger but also he really you know does seem to be a prickly personality and is now worn out as welcome in a couple of stops due to his inability to get along with the front office and, and as you mentioned I think it, it really helps that they have Luke Walton and I think Luke uh, is 
at the very least not a downgrade from Jaeger he's more known as being much more emotionally intelligent than Dave Jaeger is he's going to keep running he also is, has a history of getting teams to defend above their talent level and yeah he didn't I mean I would say the last two years well I mean this year it was tough but certainly with young teams I think he's shown an ability to connect with them and get them to overperform the whole LeBron thing was was difficult let's turn now to that situation in LA where I should have started where Luke and the Lakers had what was considered to be a mutual parting of the ways and I actually buy that frankly uh you know there it was seemed fait completely that Luke was going to get fired and then after Magic dropped out as we talked about last week it seemed like maybe he could stay but with the Lakers front office situation in flux and we'll talk about that a little bit more later too that it didn't really make sense for Walton to stay he had a year left on his contract and then a team option and so at that point in time if you have another option where you can get a contract through 2022-23 which is probably a four minus one that's the usual coaching contract these days uh but to get three years of security instead of one you're going to take it because there's no way the Lakers are going to extend him at least not now he had this opportunity it made sense for him to take it maybe if he sticks around maybe it's just put Palinka and you know he doesn't have the juice to fire him and but it seemed and maybe he gets to stay on for another year but it seemed unlikely that he was going to just get an extension like anywhere like this Kings deal so it made a lot of sense for him to move on especially given how toxic the environment seemed like it was there this year additionally let's play the game out and say that Luke Walton kept the Lakers job next year if they had a significant improvement unless they just really didn't add anybody it seems unlikely that Walton would have gotten the praise there it would have been improving in talent oh look LeBron James is healthy this is what a LeBron James team is so Walton probably wouldn't depend we don't know the terms of the Sacramento deal I don't think he would have necessarily even if the Lakers had a successful deal been able to parlay that into a meaningfully better job like I don't know which ones are necessarily going to be available in the summer of 2020 I wish there was a coaching contract like Spotrack or what Pincus does at, at Basketball Insiders but there is not for various reasons and so Walton I think he got a job that should be desirable I mean they have cycled through coaches yeah we'll, we'll with, see about that with frequency but at least they have intriguing young talent and I mean Vivek has given Vlade a lot of job security so maybe maybe that'll shift a little bit depending on how things go and if not you at least get those the extra years in the contract that he did not have with the Lakers coaching a young team and they're you know living in Sacramento is materially different than living in LA depending on what what Luke's preferences are that can be can be mean different things and we'll see I mean we'll, we'll see what it is and I think that he's he's a good fit for keeping the transition part of their personality and I hope that a potentially improved relationship between Walton and Vlade as opposed to the Jaeger Divots relationship could lead maybe to Walton having a little bit more of a voice in the personnel process, which was a problem not only for Walton with the Lakers, but also for Jaeger with the Kings. You had these circumstances of GMs that were choosing buying the groceries that didn't really make sense for the owner, to use an old Bill Parcells metaphor. And if Walton and, and Vlade have a much better personal relationship, maybe even if it's not like, hey, pick this guy and you pick that guy, just if it's the input of the, the Kings have cap space to use this year they might have a decision on Harrison Barnes depending on what Barnes does with his player option that Walton can say hey like these these are the guys that make the most sense with what I want to do and the pieces that we already have these are the ones that don't that could help out both that could help out Walton and that could help out the Kings roster 
I think the question of whether DBOTs deserved an extension is an interesting one. Obviously, maybe authored the most asinine trade of the decade. Not the most damaging, because that was clearly the Brooklyn trade, but that one at least had a theory behind it that made sense at the time, where they felt like they were building a contending team by making those moves. And another thing that's kind of lost in that whole Brooklyn thing is Brooklyn also got off of some really bad salary in that trade. That's part of what they're paying for, not just the players of Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett. Uh, So he made that trade to just to clear cap space giving up the unprotected 2019 pick as it turned out that pick is only going to be like number 14 not the end of the world but I, I mean I think it's it's hurt them a lot especially because you know if they could have done the thing where everyone looked really good for a while and then they kind of chilled out a little bit and we're getting another top 10 pick this year their future might look a little bit brighter uh whether it was Divots, whether it was Rana Dive whether it was Brandon Williams whatever it was it, he obviously decided to draft Bagley over Doncic and Bagley looks solid and it, everyone in Sacramento is really excited about him but he's not Luka Doncic and he's not going to be Luka Doncic and he's still a, a very difficult fit in today's game the Cousins trade one that we completely pilloried at the time actually ended up not looking that bad they're gonna they ended up basically getting the number 10 pick that year and Buddy healed out of that trade healed has looked much better than we thought he would he's a, a quality starting shooting guard average 20 points a game on good efficiency this year he's a quality player guy you can scale around as well with his shooting ability uh and then they turned that into 15 and 20 with justin jackson and harry giles they traded that 10 pick which was zach collins uh so and giles is looking like okay jackson is already on the move he made that barnes deal and some other draft picks that, that maybe were, were not as good so overall i mean it, it's kind of a mixed resume they are moving forward here this is their first season of relevance in their best season since in the last 15 years basically since 2006 i guess uh so it does seem they're sort of on the right track and fox is looking like a great pick at number four there's other people they could have drafted there i'm sorry number five in 2017 there's other guys they could have drafted there they went with him instead that is looking like the right pick would you have extended him no i I wouldn't have and and a big part of it is also the some of the free agent contracts they signed i mean in 2017 zach randolph to the to that disastrous contract george hill they were largely able to get off of george hill's contract but it was still real bad like that was was, and and they were bad they were poor process decisions you know it was they misidentified where the team was and that those players were going to be good and gave them not only too much money for a single year but multiple years in each of those cases i mean george hill even has so this is he's in the second year and then there's a small partial guarantee zebo was already not a good fit for where sacramento was and then they basically just had to eat that contract even though they did technically trade him towards the end of it in the harrison barnes deal those sorts of decisions are deeply troubling to me also you know drafting papa Giannis, somebody who that what that pick wasn't yeah. as big as like it wasn't that was still a good trade though because they got bogdanovich in that trade that yeah i mean it, which is crazy but like i mean will you you see with some of the some of the draft picks that the the decision making was it wasn't great like you know yeah. they took the and, right and guy unclear. at the right spot like three times maybe maybe yeah it's unclear whether divots even was the guy making those selections at the time i mean there's been so much palace intrigue there of who is who is actually in charge uh and, and i'm and i wonder who's going to do the day of the day here because you know it doesn't seem like Vlade necessarily is doing that um should we go to LA now yeah let's do it so the Lakers had previously you know Magic had left and included in that beyond not telling Jeannie Buss and everything else he he mentioned that Jeannie had given him authorization to fire Luke Walton which made Luke Walton I mean to me when I heard that I'm like oh he's gone not only because like that meant they weren't going to extend him but when that had comes out publicly the relationship is very hard to reconcile and and leading to the 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 kind of the mutual departure because 
he's just looking for other options. So I, I think that made a lot of sense. And so now the Lakers have a head coaching vacancy. The three names that have been reported the most so far are Ty Lue, LeBron's most recent coach before the Lakers, Jawan Howard, who has been an assistant for the Miami Heat for a while, and Monty Williams, who has been as an assistant for the last few years, but has previously been a head coach as well. Well, before we even talk about that, I think it looks like Rob Palenka is just going to consolidate power here. That's what Ramona Shelburne's reporting has been. There was talk that maybe David Griffin could be there. He's now in New Orleans. We'll talk about that. And that they might look elsewhere. And it looks like, no, it's still going to be the same old who you know, nepotism. I'm just want want to have someone that I'm familiar with and who's not going to hurt me. Uh, There's some thought maybe that Kurt Rambis could become more involved now. Linda Rambis, his wife, is one of Jeannie's uh, good friends and and is involved on the business side there. Uh, The Lakers did fire their trainer, apparently as part of a purge just to support the storyline that it was the injuries that that did them in this year and certainly not any of their personnel moves uh no indication that they've moved on from their strength guy who you know if we're being honest probably wouldn't have been hired by another nba team uh so it looks like polinka is the guy now and if you're it really would have made sense if you were going to get a new president of basketball operations figure to replace the 10 million dollar a year magic johnson salary that he really earned uh that they would wait on the coach and do that first but it seems like no Polinka is going to be running the coaching search um we also find out in the I guess we could talk about that afterwards but I mean I think that's important to say that it looks like Polinka is going to be the guy here moving forward which of course I think would be an absolute mass mistake but uh, I mean, he, I'm sure he hasn't he hasn't earned it I mean it, it's pretty ridiculous I mean we talked about the idea with with Vlade already and Polinka's resume to me especially when you can Consider, I mean, you consider that the a lot of the front office decisions, the choices that Magic and Plinka made outside of LeBron James, there were some big problems there. The Zubach trade is an absolute disaster. But also, I mean, there's pr- pretty public reporting. I mean, Bill Orem's piece had some on this, and you you just kind of get this around of Plinka not having a ton of fans around the league, and some of that relates to relationships. Yeah. Or, some or of, in his or, own organization. Organization. That's true. Like, the, the, there's no process there. There's no even like discussion. Uh, there's no integration of scouting reports and all this uh, and everyone getting together and deciding what they're going to do as a group even if Polinka's making the final decision it, it's apparently the entire culture there is just totally insular and it's more egregious for the Lakers specifically and you could say the Knicks in this as well because they make enough money as an organization with with the crazy revenue streams that they have to and living in a city that people want to live in and a glamour franchise with a history that is also willing to spend on on court talent as well this this isn't a franchise that has to worry about oh we need to trim our luxury tax bill or we can't go into that to pay the right guys they should have one of the best gms and ideally a a well fleshed out front office staff analytics scouts all that kind of stuff yeah all the time biggest i mean they should be like the sixers where they're spending like millions of dollars and and then they should be commissioning hagiographies of how they've spent all that money on on this stuff and instead they're just kind of you know all right well who's someone that i know from the past all right we'll hire that guy right and that just hasn't been a part of their modern history and that is deeply concerning with how the league has grown you know it's a little bit different you know when when dr bus had had the organization first of all they had you know when when jerry west was there jerry west did a very good job and when cupcheck eventually took over he had some some strong stretch as well i think cupcheck's resume eyes of the lakers gm is a little bit overrated but still i mean he had he had earned at least in the early days his place there but since then i mean you have a lot of people who have had key decision-making roles and it hasn't been merit-based 
and it hasn't even necessarily been clear like what they were bringing to the table and when you have the means and the expectations because i still think the lakers conceive of themselves as this you know diamond franchise all that kind of stuff well then you need you need to put people in the position to to do so and I think that uh, there's still some Lakers stuff I want to get into, but I want to draw this contrast now before we get to it with the Pelicans. I mean, David Griffin did a, he had a successful job. You know, he benefited in some ways in Cleveland from being out before the wheels fell off the wagon. You can argue that he would have done a better job keeping those wheels on, but he was very in demand. And it sounds like part of what he got in New Orleans was a greater commitment for, you know, for spending and all that kind of stuff. Things that normally would be a strength for the Lakers compared to all these other offers. And whether it was because they think that it's Palenka, like the David Griffin choosing that job basically the same day that it sounded like Palenka was going to take over the coaching search was striking to me. Yeah, we could talk about uh, New Orleans. I think the Gail Benson era, when we do our ownership rankings again, I don't know when that'll be, but she's going to be a lot higher than uh, her husband was in his late days. And perhaps, you know, that was due to health concerns. But I think she's doing really well. David Griffin is probably the best free agent general manager available on the market. And she offered him enough power to get him to leave Napa and his life that he's built there. There's an expected upgrade in staffing and resources committed to the franchise. You remember Griffin was being talked about in New Orleans that didn't, or, or in New York, that didn't feel like a, a great fit. Philly, you know, unclear if they wanted him or not, but maybe that wasn't a, a great fit. And it seems like they're actually going to be, you know, not run as the runt of the litter with the Pelican or with the Saints now. And looks like Alvin Gentry is going to return and obviously Gentry and Griffin work together in Phoenix uh, where Griffin was the assistant GM his title is going to be I think executive vice president of basketball operations so not president of basketball operations I don't know if that has any significance maybe you can get a promotion later on but I think especially one thing that I really like about Griffin is he's kind of at a point in his life as a cancer survivor he's won a championship he's dealt with all the bullshit around LeBron and the drama in Cleveland like he just doesn't give a shit and that's the exact guy like he doesn't care about the optics he doesn't care about keeping his job he was happy doing what he was doing already he's not going to be one of these guys at least based on his previous resume who's just gonna be like oh well you know we gotta just make make the playoffs here just for the optics of it or oh we can't do that because it's gonna look bad that's exactly who I want running this trade process with Anthony Davis it's a very 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 important point because I, I wrote the Pelicans offseason preview before they hired their GM and one of the key points of it was the Davis trade being an inflection point for the franchise because there are going to be a lot of different offers on the table some of them will be draft pick heavy some of them will be young player currently in the league heavy others could be veterans you know maybe the, uh, there, there are probably going to be guys on the table that we would not have expected just because Anthony Davis is that good and you want the right person to be evaluating and you also want them to be looking through the correct lens because if they see you know drew holiday and they have pressure that they would rather be the seven seed next year and then just have this extended rebuild at some point down the road instead of dealing with the pain now if that's the best offer on the table then i, I think that's a really good thing for the franchise because 
an honest evaluation you know there there could theoretically be a way for them to for the pelicans to make it back into the west playoff picture next year depending on what they get but for the long-term health of the franchise that's probably not going to be the best tact and so i think griffin is well suited to making the right call there and then also all of the ancillary elements like the commitment to upgrade the staffing and and general resources those indicate and and that makes sense that griffin you talked about where he is in his life that he would say if i'm going to do this it has to be worth it and that makes that also makes gail benson look better and it puts the pelicans on much better footing for this next step wherever it specifically takes them so i mentioned that benson will be higher in the ownership rankings well two people that she will be higher than is uh one robert sarver robert sarver after an exhaustive search to find the best possible gm candidate is going to actually stick with james jones who you know has a ton of experience and really has earned it i think and jeff bauer has agreed to become a senior vp of basketball operations so it sounds like he's going to be above trevor Buxting, buckstein maybe i've only ever seen that in print uh, as who's kind of their cap guy in phoenix and still below james jones james jones is going to be the main guy although you know if we're being honest it's going to be sarver who's going to make the the ultimate decisions here uh bauer was ousted in detroit he was stan van gundy's day-to-day guy in detroit and this is just yet another missed opportunity and in phoenix if i'm a phoenix fan where we just gave a bunch of public money that's going to go right into robert sarver's pockets and then of course robert sarver was nice enough to donate 50k to the pac of the councilwoman who changed her vote that was uh i'm sure it was a great deal for the city though if it took a fifty thousand dollar donation to get her to change her vote uh so but if i were a phoenix fan phoenix residents and oh you're gonna go with jeff bauer instead of actually like even interviewing people how would you know whether james jones is the best choice for the job you're not even gonna try to interview guys with real resumes and this is just find the cheapest guy find the guy that's gonna allow me to just do what i want to do who doesn't have enough gravitas to stop me from doing what i want to do if you're robert sarver and i mean this is why bad teams stay bad maybe it'll work out i mean i don't know maybe jeff bauer is gonna look like a genius or james jones is gonna look like a genius in phoenix but the track record does not indicate that and the owner they're working under did not indicate that james jones is not even made a draft pick yet because he got the job in October of last year and that was Ryan McDonough had it he's the one who chose Aiden and Mikhail Bridges and Elia Kobo and so I don't know how how involved James Jones was in that process but so I mean think about what you don't know about him and to, to commit to that and, and this sort of a structure yeah it, it's it's deeply concerning I, I mean the idea that you could be a player and then spend one and a half years in a front office and now you're qualified to be a head basketball decision maker is absolutely laughable maybe that was true 30 years ago where you just you see the game so incredibly well now maybe i could see you could be qualified to be a coach maybe but being in a front office and the day-to-day stuff there is so different than what you're doing as a player even if you could say hey because i played i am just this awesome talent evaluator which frankly from the players i talked to that's not the case uh for nearly all of them uh it takes a lot of time to learn this shit like even someone who just is incredibly dedicated and the smartest person that you could possibly imagine and yeah he might be a pretty good communicator and that kind of stuff and everyone likes him that doesn't mean that you're qualified uh now let's turn to 
the Memphis Grizzlies, where Robert Pira had consolidated power himself, buying out some of the minority partners with that unique uh, buy-sell clause. And in what was a complete shit show, J.B. Bickerstaff and Chris Wallace, the coach and GM there, both conduct exit interviews with both the players and the media. Chris Wallace says, oh yeah, uh, J.B. is definitely going to be back. And then both of them head upstairs and find out that they're fired. Or, I'm sorry, Chris Wallace's day-to-day operational responsibilities have been reallocated and he will focus exclusively on player scouting and jb bickerstaff has been relieved of his duty there are a number of things here i mean one of them we were very critical of bickerstaff being hired it actually came up yesterday on the nba cast because he was the guy who took over as in 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 an interim basis for kevin McHale. that really weird houston rockets year and then he was the interim head coach in memphis not this season but the previous season and then they gave him the full-time job i hadn't seen much in that year it seemed like the players liked him but in terms of like creative creative elements on the floor or player usage or anything like that that really made him a a particularly strong fit he got the job and i again was not particularly impressed with bickerstaff's coaching acumen or any of the specifics with him though i mean that that grizzlies team did defend pretty well so yeah and he deserves credit for that but in terms of like the stuff they ran offensively in particular wasn't particularly inspired and now they so they've already done a piece of the reshuffling here in terms of the front office part where Jason Wexler is going to be the president of the franchise and he is going to have they're using the term oversight of both business and basketball operations and then Zachary Kleiman has been promoted to executive VP of basketball operations the same job that David Griffin has with the Memphis with the New Orleans Pelicans and of course those two individuals have identical resumes yeah Jason Wexler will serve as president of the franchise with oversight of both business and basketball operations that is noteworthy because he has been exclusively on the business side until now as somebody who wrote it who wrote a chapter in a book on robert rowell on the warriors people can look that up if they want to when when people on the business side come over to the basketball side there have been some stories of things things going a little bit haywire and then zachary Kleiman, who has a little bit more of a basketball background he he served a number of internships with a number of franchises been with the team since 2014 doing kind of more cap stuff it sounds like from his resume so he's at least has a little bit more he's gonna be executive vice president of basketball operations so he's kind of the day-to-day if you think of him as the gm and jason wexler as the president of basketball operations who's not involved as much in the day-to-day i guess by the way this always seemed just absolutely ridiculous to me why would you have one guy who is more involved in the day-to-day but then the person with the decision-making power is above him and less involved why wouldn't you have the person who can who makes the decision be the one who's actually involved in the decision-making process and gathering of, of that data on a day-to-day basis why would you be like okay here I'm, I'm gonna give you this powerpoint on everything and you just make the decision even though you have all these res- other responsibilities it ba- i mean i can understand where in other businesses that makes sense because there are just so many aspects of the business that you you have to consider but basketball operations presumably every decision should just be about what's going to be best for the franchise as far as winning and so having that person also have business side responsibilities and just not be able to spend as much time but still be making the decision makes very little sense or you just have you know magic johnson where he's not involved as much or you have the coach who's the president of basketball operations where you know he's not as involved in the day-to-day on the front office side but he's still making the decision like that doesn't work why wouldn't you just have that guy be the one to, to make the decision it really makes very little sense and 
this is just a theory that i have no basis for but it does seem like maybe these moves are going to be a precursor to at some point para either moving or selling this bringing in business side guys discussion of oh we want to build something sustainable for the long term they definitely well, i don't know about definitely but they, they have been at the very least been making as much money as they could because they've been very close to the tax these last few years because of that parsons contract and it being in a win now mode this also would seem to indicate that mike conley is almost certainly going to be on the move this offseason he was he tweeted no words after finding out about this obviously jb bickerstaff who he deals with regularly is probably the most entrenched in his mind when he makes that comment so that's just a thought we've seen this when teams want to get sold they kind of strip things down a little bit go with more of a make money sort of approach and it does seem like maybe that's what's coming here now we've said they need to rebuild regardless so i and we'll see how it is that they go about doing that but that's just that's just something to keep in the back of our minds here a couple other pieces of news for the memphis grizzlies cj miles wait hold on let's talk about bigger stuff he he deserved to get fired what do you think of that i don't think he deserved to get hired so (laughs) he did a good job but he did but i thought yeah he did a better job than i expected i mean that team defended they defended well i thought they you know we talked about this just a bit ago with luke walton i thought they defended better than their talent level if we're going to use clean the glasses which is useful to use considering the amount of garbage time that the memphis grizzlies played this year memphis finished 10th in defense i would say that was better than their than their overall personnel jaron jackson took some nice steps and he had a a tough roster to make these things work i mean especially once they made the gasol trade and then they also moved away garrett temple and jermichael green for avery bradley though bradley did play better as a grizzly than he did as a clipper yeah i I thought that he did a a reasonable job why i would be a little bit less enthusiastic about bringing bickerstaff back is that offensively i just i just didn't think they did a whole lot and and jaron jackson in particular is a piece that while not the primary ball handler or anything like that that i mean we're seeing this a little bit with miles turner in indiana again nate mcmillan doing a very good job overall but this specific thing has not been a strength that using jaron jackson properly is a is a different kind of challenge and and i i'm not sure that bickerstaff was up to that challenge given the way that he used him this year and maybe it would have been different after after the Gasol trade if Jaron had been healthy but he was not but yeah I mean so but the, the challenge of that with Bickerstaff especially if it, the players liked him and it sounds like they did is that I think you have to have something kind of in play and with Luke Walton going to the Kings I don't see I mean I don't see a Dave Yeager reunion necessarily but I don't know exactly who that is like Bickerstaff it's kind of one of those like if you get something better by all means like if, if you have an opportunity to, to catch lightning in a bottle do it but if you can't then okay and especially if they're going to be a rebuilding team now they're going to be paying two head coaches yeah he did a better job than i expected him to i didn't like what he had done in houston but you mentioned that was kind of a a weird year and then last year obviously they were tanking like crazy down the end he was nine and ten this year even with a ton of injuries and nobody playing and conley not playing down the end which which i thought was pretty impressive i I did like the way he got these guys to try and defend and he's got to they got to get someone in who can make more use of of jaron jackson's three-point bombing but i i did i think jackson took some strides forward as a post player and improving his toughness and stuff like that this year you start to get into some other stuff cj miles has opted in to his 8.7 million which uh i think we might have seen that one coming uh other notes 
John Hollinger has been moved into a key role with the organization in a senior advisory capacity. He's going to be working out of Atlanta now, uh, not Memphis. And Kyle Anderson is going to have shoulder surgery this week after missing the final 30 games of the year due to shoulder soreness. He's going to have thoracic outlet decompression surgery, which will remove part of the top right rib to remove pressure in the area. Although he, it was clarified that he does not specifically have thoracic outlet syndrome which Marco Fultz has um and yeah. we should also we should also note that Kyle Anderson w- the expectation is that he'll be totally ready to play when training camp opens next season and he is under contract for another two plus a player option so they better hope that he can contribute at least some they've already dealt with forwards that were largely unable to contribute due to injury and and Anderson he ha- he did have that nice 17-18 season with San Antonio where he played a large role due to Kawhi Leonard missing a ton of time that's why he got the offer sheet with the Grizzlies so whatever his place in the rotation under new coach x he will hopefully I, I think of kyle anderson at this point in his career more as a four than a five though positional scarcity often pushes him down that that's what happens with a lot of guys who are better at power forward but we'll have sorry four than three and that's why he'll be pushed to the three and we'll just have to see what, what he can do and it's also you know another guy who's having thoracic outlet compression surgery who does not have the syndrome remember that was a part of the ho- what hopeful solution for brandon ingram for a different issue with uh dvt and markel fultz who has thoracic outlet syndrome has not had that surgery but you know there are alternate treatments they're trying to do seems like they're trying to do the other for the non-surgical option at least for right now in the bummer category in detroit vinnie goodwill reporting that blake griffin likely to miss the first run series against the Bucks with the left knee injury it was described for the first time i've heard any kind of a diagnosis as actually a sprained a knee although he says there's nothing structural but then that he also might have to have a surgery to kind of clean things up in that left knee uh, even if he comes back uh, for game three there's maybe some thought that he could but I, I think they realize that they have absolutely zero chance in this series and with griffin under contract going for it it's funny how tom gores it's pell-mell we got to make the playoffs nothing else matters except making the playoffs and now they're here and all right we're going to just get completely destroyed by the bucks so our plan is to continue to not discuss games in that series unless they are close but it really a bummer for Blake because it, it would have been nice to at least see him get into the playoffs and he, he's had a wonderful season he deserves so much credit for overcoming his injury concerns and to have this pop up at the end of a season in which he was extremely durable actually is a, a real bummer uh, in Dallas Mark Cuban saying on the radio that they plan to extend Dwight Powell for another three years he does have a player option for next year which is in the 10 million dollar range and you would imagine that such an extension would involve him declining that player option it wouldn't technically i guess he could still technically extend if he declines that player option so sure maybe maybe he declines it and then you know because you can extend all the way up until june 30th he he declines it and then becomes a a free agent and they re-sign him or it's an extension but presumably at least i hope for dallas's sake it is a lower annual value than 10 million a year but it paul has been a a solid backup center option for them in that dallas five type of undersized roll to the rim get some dunks type of role and this could be a way for them to open up just a smidge more cap space they're really right on the borderline right now of being able to offer a max contract in the seven to nine year experience level which will be a little under 33 million dollars with the current cap projection to start uh i'm gonna be very interested in the machinations here because there are a couple different ways that this can work and the impact on dallas's cap space which is 
going to be extremely important, you know, like how, how it affects it, you know, if they agree to a lower number, but then he signs quickly to, to drop his cap hold, all those sorts of things are going to be compelling. On the on the contract front, Kent Bazemore p- is going to pick up his $19.2 million option for next season. That is not a surprise that it would have been a lot of money for Bazemore to turn down. And in Minnesota, who has other news that we'll discuss, Jeff Teague both picked up his player option worth $19 million for next season. And is uh, he already, it was, this was last week, he went under, he underwent surgery on his left ankle, a debridement surgery. Those two things aren't, it isn't surprising that they're happening in concert. Teague could have hit the open market and been one of the more intriguing point guards outside of that main group where, you know, they're, they're like Kemba and Kyrie are in a rare fight here. I, I, I kind of disagree with you. I think he, he had a terrible year and he would have had very little. Well, no, but what I'm saying is even, even with that, even if he's, let's say the best of the rest now that Bledsoe got an extension and then those two other guys are just in a separate category there still isn't probably enough money like this was still the right absolutely the right decision for him that's where I was going with it well where else we should go is what you alluded to which is some somewhat conflicting reporting Woj saying Minnesota finalizing plans keep GM Scott Layden and coach Ryan Saunders but also some discussion that they would be looking for a president of basketball operations to come in above those guys which again hey Glenn Taylor not running a reasonable process at at first I thought it was totally ridiculous that they're just going to keep Layden and Saunders I understand a little more because he at least coached there and people seem to like him and you know I mean it's still while it is a a nice story that he is now the coach and can continue his father's legacy i still you know again think there should have been a process there to see what other candidates might have been interested but it looks like he's gonna say i still think that's a little bit more defensible than just keeping laden without a process and now oh you're you're gonna bring someone in above those guys well wouldn't that person like the ability if you're gonna get the most qualified candidate wouldn't he like the ability to pick his own staff and pick his own coach so now you're really limiting yourself even if they they do bring in someone above laden that guy is clearly not going to be the best candidate because he's not going to have the power to do what he wants to do and he's going to be limited in what he can do and you would think also if they're just if laden is so awesome that they feel like they just have to keep him then the guy that they bring in is just going to be is he going to be a figurehead is he going to be another one of these guys is like kind of a business side guy and then he'll make the the ultimate decision or you know it's really both in terms of the guy the power that the guy is going to have what his role is going to be and the quality of candidate you can get when you put in this stipulation that you got to keep your number two guy and the coach oh bad teams stay bad a lot of parallels there with what the the sales pitch that robert sarver had to make for somebody who was going to answer to james jones you know and and actually and kakashkov was going to looks like was going to stay the way so there are a lot of parallels between those except that kakashkov was under contract so i guess that's slightly different one other crazy story that we should discuss we didn't get to this in the Lakers section because it was largely distinct from the other drama that they've been dealing with was a story that Shams Trania had at The Athletic about a situation which happened in, in late February. Basically, Lonzo Ball, who's been dealing with this this ankle issue, he was planning on having a, an, a, a surgery on his left ankle that is also, Shams reporting, was that it was being planned by his now estranged business partner, Alan Foster. That drama, I think, I believe we've talked about before. And that surgery was not done with the author, would not have been done, it didn't happen, with the authorization of the Lakers. Lonzo traveled to Ohio to potentially go through with it, and they had dealt with this doctor before because he had done, he had operated on LiAngelo Ball, Lonzo's brother, and the Lakers found out about it because Lonzo 
called Rob Palenka, the organization responded aggressively, basically saying we didn't authorize this. It could be grounds to to void the contract. And then they they arranged for Alonso to come back to LA and he did not end up having surgery. And so there's just another crazy thing that this Lakers front office had to deal with. Now, it looks like this one was more based on the reporting that's out there now. And that's an important caveat to have on a story like this. It looks like the craziness was more instigated by not the Lakers front office, but it was something they had to deal with this year. Yeah. And it's interesting, Lonzo getting drafted number two, compare him to say someone like Dennis Smith. And it sounds like maybe Lonzo is taking a little better control of his life, although there are conflicting reports that maybe LeVar is still really involved. LeVar is, is a complete moron. It seems like, uh, you know, he's, he's being the guy who helps mold his son into being a good basketball player does not qualify you for being in charge of your son's business interests and career and also just the personal stuff i mean i think he's he did well to build up this brand and and get all this attention and they probably made a bunch of money from that facebook live series and stuff but clearly as far as like helping lonzo become a successful nba basketball player he doesn't seem to be a positive influence right now and it's interesting how someone like dennis smith is viewed as having all this baggage that didn't prevent lonzo from being drafted really highly but it does seem like yeah he's he's had these injuries there was some discussion around the surgery that he had last year as well of whether he was doing what the organization wanted him to do or not whether that came as a a surprise to the organization he was had that bone bruise he tried to work back from it he couldn't then he had to have the surgery that situation seems like whether that's the organization's fault or lavar or other people around the family or foster or whatever or some combination thereof didn't seem like that situation was handled that well this situation obviously doesn't seem like it was handled that well either they're just always just gonna have a surgery that the organization hadn't sanctioned obviously it's the organization's opinion that he doesn't need the surgery can the organization be trusted is he gonna eventually have to have that surgery i guess we'll find out but this is not good if you're trying to project how lonzo's career is going to look going forward both from the lakers standpoint and uh, the people around him and hopefully this is a situation that can be improved uh, in cleveland the voice is now silent another intriguing job opening now with with cleveland and we'll see who who they interview for that spot clearly a rebuild is necessary cleveland was one of the worst teams in the league this year though it is very encouraging that you should probably say what actually happened by the way though some people might not yeah that, that larry drew will no longer be the head coach he took over for Ty Lu when Lu got fired early early in the season and it always kind of seemed like that they were going to a a more speedy departure than jim boylan in boston if you are in brook sorry in chicago i was thinking of the game they lost to boston um partially because of that weird thing why we said the voice thing is that originally larry drew did not want to take over as head coach he wanted to basically be called he wanted to be the voice and not really get that whereas boylan it was kind well, of well he was happy to take over he just wanted to wanted actually to get make paid. more money and yeah so there was there was a little bit of a, a little bit of a kerfuffle there a little bit of a stalemate and eventually drew you know he, he got the title and but you know it, it kind of made sense that they might want to go in a different direction there and i'm interested in in how that job goes i mean cleveland brought up you know with with jb bickerstaff how well memphis defended cleveland not only were they the worst defense in the league and a lot of that was talent it wasn't necessarily coaching but they were the worst defense in the league by 2.5 points per 100 possessions using clean the glasses filter that is a spectacular like a mind-blowing margin from the second worst defense in the league that isn't from league average or anything that's from phoenix 2.5 points per 100 possession worse than the next yeah <laughs> that's 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 quite a statement there yeah and then and so from league average well so we'll, we'll use the we'll use the 15th team in the league that was 1099 so they were almost eight points per hundred possessions worse than the, the number 15 team in the league that's a lot 
Yeah, so it seems like the idea in Cleveland is going to be a younger head coach, big on development, big on analytics, kind of in the, the Lloyd Pierce type of model here. I, I'm guessing that coach also will be inexpensive, which given still how much they have to pay next year as well and how much they had to pay in the LeBron years, I, I don't blame Gilbert for going a little bit less expensive here. Um, And for Drew, to be clear, the statement was that he asked to not be a part of the process of looking for the permanent head coach perhaps he would have given been given a chance to interview but i think he saw the handwriting on the wall there and, and he would also be hard pressed to argue that he did anything to deserve the full-time job this season other than just bring stability and i guess that's true that they, they there did seem to be at least a better feeling around the team at the end but uh in chicago lowry markinen has been cleared to resume full basketball activities after completing examinations uh, with cardiologists remember he had that weird exhaustion on a couple of occasions and got shut down for the rest of the year in toronto og ananobi had an emergency appendectomy and he's expected to be sidelined at least until the conference finals and they need him not as much as uh boston needs marcus smart necessarily but i think he's someone who is going to be really important now i i think they can take care of philly just fine without him so he is kind of part of the brigade on ben simmons and jimmy butler so it'd be nice to have him but he also has kind of had a lost year and he may not be able to contribute even in the conference finals even if it they get that far they've been going with an eight-man rotation so far we've seen norm powell get a, a lot more time in particular so but they only kind of have eight guys that they trust right now but at least those are eight solid guys in theory and but if they go against the bucks they are going to wish that they had og available let's talk about the lottery tiebreakers before we go just so people have it in the back of their mind for the lottery ones here really what this is about is if neither team moves into the top four because if either team moves in then the tiebreaker is pretty much irrelevant and this is the ones where you know the teams had the same record and so and and the way it works i'll use cleveland and phoenix as the example here they finished tied for the second worst record what that means is that in terms of the the top four picks that you will combine the number two odd like the number two ping pong balls and the number three ping pong balls you add those together and then you split them in half so there's no difference in terms of their odds or anything like that there however cleveland winning the tiebreaker means that if neither moves into the top four, Cleveland will pick ahead of Phoenix. Presumably that would be the fifth and sixth picks, but you know, it could theoretically be something different. Likewise, there was a three-way tie for seven, eight, nine. If nobody moves up, New Orleans gets seven, Memphis gets eight, and Dallas gets nine. That one is really significant because as it turned out, Memphis was right on that cusp in terms of whether they're going to convey that pick to the Boston Celtics. Memphis keeps the pick if it is one through eight, and then Boston gets it if it's nine through 30. So now the way the the way that Memphis keeps the pick, if everything happens, except for if somebody from nine to the end of the lottery at 14 moves into the top four and Memphis does not, in that circumstance, Memphis would send Boston the ninth pick or theoretically if two teams jumped in, you know, all that sort of stuff. Well, and what's really changed is that there's a pretty significant chance with there being four slots now and the odds, the odds being flattened that someone from nine or below does actually jump up above memphis dallas has a 26 percent chance of doing that or atlanta where i guess it would be dallas if they get into the top four they're in the number nine seed minnesota has a 14 percent chance of jumping into the top four lakers have a nine percent chance and then five percent chance for charlotte miami and boston slash philly if that's the number one pick that would have been sacramento's pick so you add all those percentages together and you've got about a 65 percent chance ultimately of memphis actually keeping 
well, the pick. Uh, actually, it's a or, little I'm bit. I'm sorry, it's actually conveying the, the pick. It's it's a it's about a 43 percent chance that the pick conveys, and part of that is because some of those op- chances, some of those ping pong balls, Memphis would be moving into the top four as well. Right, so right, yeah, yeah okay, that, that that's yeah. So it's it's about yeah. 40. It's about using Tankathon's numbers. It's about 43 percent. Yeah. Well, although if one of the guys, one of the teams below them pops up, then there's only three slots for them to get instead of four. So that, right. that would affect things. But but I, I guess there's a yeah. If the the way to say it is, if they do not move up themselves, then there is a 65 percent chance that they convey the pick because it's nine or below. That that's correct, right? I I don't think I'm my my calculus days are far enough behind me that I'm not I'm not on it right now. But well, I, I'm just doing simple addition. Yeah. Like you just you just add. Well, I, the, but you're but setting in some of the variables anyway yeah uh, um I, I i think that's right but uh, if someone wants to correct me on that feel free uh the last lottery one yeah. is charlotte so 12 13 14 was a tie charlotte would would get the 12 pick miami would get 13 and then sacramento would get 14 but then that pick conveys to boston if everything happened if anything happens other than sacramento that pick jumping all the way to first overall there is a one percent chance of that happening and in that circumstance philadelphia would get the number one overall pick and boston would get philadelphia's pick which is significantly further down outside i'm just sad that charlotte's not drafting 11 i think like can we just rename the 11th or 12th pick in honor of the charlotte hornets every year i'm on board with that and then you get outside of the lottery these ones we know because these teams can't move around so orlando will pick 16th brooklyn will pick 17th indiana 18 san antonio 19 boston 20 yeah another another loss there for boston they could have been 18 they got kicked down to 20 and then another loss for boston okc gets 21 boston with their own pick i believe that's their own pick they get 22 oh oh, yeah by the way sorry to to interrupt here but while i was thinking of it it's ridiculous to me that the clippers and san antonio would be tied san antonio wins the tiebreaker and gets the seven seed over the clippers but yet the clippers also lose the tiebreaker in the lottery like why you should at least have it be based on the seeding where one of those teams is above the the other if you got the lower seed the clippers you should be able to at least get a higher draft pick than santo i know it goes to boston this year but like it's kind of unfair that you can just get screwed twice by a tiebreaker like that i'm guessing the league would point the argument well that indiana was in the tie too and so it'd be complicated but there there are ways that they could make that there are ways that they could square that if they really wanted to and clearly i mean teams would choose the benefit if they're making the playoffs you would want the superior seed like that so it's it seems it would be an acceptable sacrifice should they just choose to to eschew the tiebreaker in those specific circumstances where the teams were in the same conference whereas like let's say the okc boston tiebreaker there was no benefit gained either way so then okc getting 21 boston getting 22 that's totally fine yeah and then uh, portland gets 25 houston a pick that is going to cleveland from the brandon knight iman shumpert deal by the way shumpert not even in the rotation during the competitive portion of the game against utah maybe we'll see more of him against a a golden state but that trade for houston which was a, a salary dump isn't looking amazing when you gave up your first round pick to get someone who's not even in your playoff rotation as of now at least and uh just a, a couple other ones that are just trades to remind you of denver's pick number 27 overall goes to brooklyn in the kenneth farid salary dump and toronto's pick number 29 overall goes to san antonio from the Kawhi leonard trade so uh, the the teams that gave up picks to dump salary this year uh, or i guess you know toronto you wouldn't say that necessarily but uh the teams that traded picks during this year seem to have done pretty well in terms of giving up picks that aren't that valuable uh all right we done here yeah i'll mention that i have pieces coming out pretty regularly for the athletic my on on 
Monday, my Charlotte Hornets preview came out. I still have Miami and Memphis to come out this week. And then as soon as teams are eliminated with the discretion of their editorial staff in the next couple days, those will come out. So the reasonable assumption could be that the Pistons will be relatively early in that process. I'm going to start writing theirs relatively soon. And those are a lot of fun to do. It's a kind of a way for me to start getting my mind on the postseason. And we will also be doing offseason previews on Dunked On as well. So you see, you get some of that content here. And also we should mention the NBA cast. So the NBA cast, will we are taking Monday off because of the Warriors home game, but then we will be back for Tuesday, which is pretty exciting. And then pretty regularly throughout the next week as the, you know, we don't have any home games to cover. So it, there are a lot of, a lot of interesting series still going on. So you can check our schedule. We'll have that posted. Nate's Twitter account usually publishes that, or you could even just the Google doc that we have. You could just keep checking that as well. Yeah. The, the plan on Tuesday, we're going to do Toronto, Orlando, starting at seven Eastern four Pacific until that game is decided. And then we will switch to Denver and San Antonio and finish that game out. So it should be fun to be able to do two games that day. And uh, we'll talk to you tomorrow night. Till then. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.